Hi, this is Tom Field, Editorial Director with Information Security Media Group. The topic today is fraud and data breaches, and we're speaking with Kevin Prince, Chief Architect of Perimeter eSecurity. Kevin, thanks so much for joining me to talk about this topic today. My pleasure, Tom. Thank you for having me. Now, Kevin, you've just completed a study of financial institution data breaches. What did you find most compelling? Now, there's a couple of things that I, I thought really stood out from, from the study. The, the first one was um, still how many companies do or don't report data breaches or the information when a data breach occurs. For example, um, only 11% of companies that had data breaches actually reported them, according to one part of the survey. And of those 11% that, in fact, did, about 25%, 20, uh, 24%, 25% of them did not disclose how many records were compromised in it. So we're still, when, when we do breaches of this type, we're looking at these small slivers of data. And the amazing thing is that those small slivers of data still encompass millions and millions and millions of, of compromised uh, end-user uh, personal information. So a lot to work with, but yet still we, we know there's a whole lot more out there. Another thing that I thought stood out was that IT administrators are about 58 times more likely to be to, to kind of cause or be um, associated with the, the data security breach, not necessarily because they're malicious, but perhaps due to an error, due to a misconfiguration, um, not doing something that they should, but certainly seemed like IT administrators were um, kind of a, a weak link in, in this overall integrity of, of our data. Interesting. What do you find to be the most common types of breaches? Well, there's a, a few that kind of stood out. I mean, hacking accounted for 42% of actual incidences. This is for data breaches that occurred between 2000 and the end of 2008. And, um, and you have to kind of, when you look at data breaches, look at it in two ways. There's the number of incidents that occur and then the number of records that are compromised. And you got to look at them in both ways because it doesn't really matter whether you have one record compromised or you have 100 million compromised. It still is a data security breach and you still have to follow certain protocols and you may have to do notifications and, and deal with a lot of things regardless of how many records. So from a hacking standpoint, 42% of incidents were associated with hacking, but it accounted for 55% of records. So uh, kind of a, a correlation or, or certainly some synergies there. But theft, on the other hand, I thought was a very interesting one. Data breaches um, resulting from theft uh, were 30% of all incidences, but only accounted for 3% of records lost. I think that's really interesting because, you know, where, again, whether you have uh, just a handful of records or millions of records lost, you still have to disclose this in, in most cases. I mean, 46 states now have data security notification laws, data breach notification laws of one type or another, and, and you're going to have to notify your customers that this kind of thing happened. Uh, but although it's a small number of records, a third of the cases are, are, are theft and typically could be easily uh, dealt with. Malicious insiders was another interesting one. 15% of incidents were uh, associated with uh, malicious insiders, uh, which accounted for 24% of records. Now, interesting, given the economic conditions that we're seeing today, 
There's a lot of speculation that the insider threat is even greater than we've seen before. Do you think that that number, 15%, might creep up in another year? Oh, I definitely think it will. Um, I I wrote an article uh, a few months ago about the top nine security threats of 2009 and malicious insiders I listed as the um, greatest threat to the organization primarily because of the downturn in the economy. Uh, you know, desperate times bring out the worst in people and we're going to see and have already seen incidents where, uh, you know, these insiders do things that they shouldn't. They um, will compromise records, try to do things to make a little extra money on the side. Uh, yes, definitely I believe malicious insiders are going to play a larger and larger larger part, especially why we continue to kind of uh, have troubles in the economy. Now, beyond the obvious impact of a data breach, what are some of the real costs of these fraud incidents to institutions of all sizes? Yeah, that's a a good question because uh, that's what really people want to know is if I have some kind of a data breach, what's it really going to to cost me? And, you know, there are some statistics and things that we've been able to put together in order to um, try to break that down a little bit bit better. Um, The average cost of a data security breach is about $6.6 million, uh, which is a very significant number. Now, obviously, that's an average, and it's difficult to kind of, map that to each individual organization's size and scope and number of customers and client data that they have. So there's another statistic which says that about $200 per record compromised. So, you know, if an organization wants to try to figure out what their exposure is to something like this, they could kind of look at, you know, how large their data set is and then can kind of multiply it by that $200 number and get... uh, you know, relatively speaking, an idea of what a, a data breach would cause, cost them. Now, that number, neither of those numbers include some of the most significant costs that some companies incur with data breaches, and that is lawsuits. You know, for example, um, you know, the VA recently um, settled their uh, th- their data breach that they had for $20 million. This was a class action lawsuit that, I believe included like 26 million people. So it was a a large one. But the reason that's so interesting about this $20 million number is because in that particular incident, and this is very similar to other ones, uh, had to do with theft of a laptop. The laptop was recovered. It was determined that no data was stolen off of it. No fraud cases were reported or occurred as a result of that data breach. And still, the VA had to fork out um, $20 million to settle this lawsuit. And it came down to what was classified as essentially the emotional suffering of people having to worry about whether their credit was intact or not. Wow. And you can't even put a price on the reputational hit a company might hit, might take if... Uh They've suffered an incident. Uh, absolutely. So the, the numbers are large, and obviously what, the, what companies need to do is avoid these things at all costs. So let's talk about reducing breaches. What can financial institutions in particular be doing to decrease the number of data breaches? Sure. So I think there's several things that, that they can do. I mean, as I mentioned, 30% of data breaches occur from theft, um, this is in large part laptops that, that get stolen that have sensitive data on them, you know, whether they're at home, whether they're in a car, which is most prevalent, whether they're traveling, a hotel room, a plane, wherever it might be, theft of laptops is uh, a major problem. Now, there are only four states out of the 46 states that have data breach disclosure laws that 
uh, require you to still notify customers if the data was encrypted. So my first suggestion is encrypt your data if it's sitting on laptops at all. And that way, if the laptop does get stolen, because it's incredibly difficult to just keep your laptops from ever being stolen, but if they are, you don't have to worry about the data being compromised that's on it uh, in in the vast majority of cases. So that's a a big one. Um, I think another one is to use um, a program like Remote Data Backup and Recovery Solutions. This is where you're doing your backups over the Internet securely as opposed to data backup tapes, which then have to be stored off-site. There's a tremendous number of data breaches that occur through either employees um, having those tapes stolen or lost while they're in transport off-site, or a third party that picks them up and loses them, or something happens to them. Um, if, If they use a remote data backup service, they don't have to deal with magnetic media at all, and all of the issues around transport or around uh, the theft of that media, even while it's sitting on the network. So that's kind of a second one. Um, Training internal employees, I think, is a a huge one, especially IT. So anytime you can raise the the waterline of of all of the employees and what they're doing and and best practices and them following policies and procedures and learning about security, they're going to make fewer mistakes. They're going to be more conscious of security things. They're going to be looking out for things. And it's going to result in in fewer data data breaches. And I I think it's kind of a a no-brainer. Most financial institutions, in fact, all financial institutions are required to do that anyway, but don't do it to the level needed to really reduce data breaches significantly, and and that's what they ought to do. I think a fourth thing is um, strong enforced policies and procedures. You know, and, and banks do a fair job at this today. They write them up, but they don't keep them fresh. And the biggest gap is in uh, making sure that the employees know what these policies and procedures are, that they follow them, that the, the employees know why this is important. For example, putting a policy in place that says, uh, we don't allow peer-to-peer software to be loaded on the network and used. Uh, with, without a description as to why that's important, a, an employee might say, well, I'm going to do it anyway. I want to download this music or this movie, something like that. Well, peer-to-peer software, we have many data breach incidents that show how peer-to-peer software was used to completely compromise uh, a network without the employer, individual, end user knowing what was happening. So that will really help. I think a fifth, a fifth thing is, you know, pushing IT people too hard. Um, and, uh, you know, I, not, not that they shouldn't work, but so, so often we put our IT folks in a position where they're putting out fires all day long and they're not able to have the time to do the things that they're supposed to do, to follow the procedures they're supposed to. They'll take shortcuts. They'll do uh, a variety of, of other things that... Um, are not conducive to the best security practices, and those things lead to data breaches. So making sure that the IT folks are trained and then give them the time to do their true duties and and stay proactive on things as opposed to always reactive, I think is a, a great thing too. And then the last thing I'll mention is really to outsource to third parties. Not that any third party is a great one to outsource to, but if you pick the right partners, 
they can take on a lot of this mundane, um, a, a lot of the things that the IT field will spend a lot of time on without a lot of value, but they need, but it needs to be done. But you can outsource those things to a third party and then free up the cycles for the IT person to focus on more meaningful core business elements. Uh, you know, things that can be outsourced, for example, are 24 by 7 monitoring of firewalls, intrusion detection and prevention systems, and a variety of other solutions that really can benefit them. So those are the, the things that kind of come top of mind as to the ways that a financial institution can um, reduce their exposure to data breaches. Kevin, I read your study, and one of the topics that you discuss is the Heartland Payment Systems data breach. What is it about this incident that gives it such significance in the industry now? Well, I think the, the reason that um, it has a big spotlight on it is sure, the, the number of records that are likely associated with this breach. They have not told us the exact number, but they, um, from from being able to kind of say, okay, we process over 100 million transactions every month. We believe that the breach went on for enough time that this is likely going to be the largest data breach in the, the history of the United States, perhaps the world. Um, that, that's why I think it's getting the attention it is. But even beyond that, there's some elements to it that are that are making it a, a very interesting one to study and watch. First of all, the use of malware um, in this, a very sophisticated attack that was used to um, kind of extract the, the, the sensitive data that was ultimately used. The number of financial institutions that have already reported uh, customer compromises, card compromises is over 600. Um, you know, that they were, in fact, PCI compliant. That is the payment card industry's data security standard, what merchants have to do um, in order to be compliant uh, for for accepting uh, credit cards. And, and it's kind of interesting because uh, Heartland is trying to hide a little bit behind that PCI certification that they had, but then just this week, Visa uh, revoked that um, uh, them. They took them off of the, the approved list or the, uh, the, the PCI certified list. So there's some things going on, which I'm glad to see because it's, it's allowing Visa to step up and put some teeth into PCI, which is going to really help the overall industry uh, keep their consumer data a whole lot more private. So let's look ahead a little bit, Kevin. Given what you've seen in the past year, what trends do you foresee throughout 2009 in terms of, one, the types of fraud that we'll see, and two, ways institutions can be preventing this fraud from, from taking reach? Sure. Um, you know, a couple of things probably I, I think we're going to see a lot more of, and we've seen these in the past, but they seem to be the growing, the, um, the preferred ways these criminals have a, of doing this. One is the, the use of malware. You know, we had... Heartland uh, be based on that. We had the Hannaford breach be um, associated, in, and they used malware on that. And we're going to see more and more of this. And the reason that's significant, and we're going to see more of it, is using malware is essentially having the inside computers almost compromise themselves. If a user, an employee on a network, goes out to a website that is malicious, a website that's been compromised, they can have a Trojan horse software or other malware can installed on their system and they can be completely compromised without them even knowing. And these users, these employees that are doing this, 
you know, all they're doing is going out to Google and typing in something and, and clicking on a link. Um, there could be search engine manipulation that's occurring that is leading them to these false websites, as well as compromised websites. In 2008, we had Walmart.com, ZDNet, History.com, uh, MSNBC.com, CBS, and literally hundreds and hundreds of other highly used legitimate websites get compromised. And if your users went out to that website on that day, uh, they could be compromised. And, and then those systems are the ones used to perpetrate this fraud and capture the sensitive data. So I believe that malware is going to continue to explode in its use because it's so effective. It completely bypasses the traditional edge-based security systems like firewalls and intrusion detection systems. It can be very effective in just getting right around those things. So um, I think we're going to see a lot more of that. The other thing I think we're going to see more of, there was a, a very interesting breach not too long ago that occurred from uh, RBS WorldPay. I don't know if you heard about that one or not, but um, there was $9 million stolen in a very short period of time, a couple of hours. It, they used 100 cloned credit cards that they had um, captured from a, a data breach. It was in 49 cities, 130 ATMs, and in this short period of time, a few hours, they took $9 million. And, and so this, you know, kind of just going to an ATM, getting the money and walking away, that's where the rubber hits the road for, for these criminals. You know, a lot of people think it's about selling identities and, and this and that, and, and certainly there's a lot of that happening. Uh, but in this particular case, just, you know, taking money right out of people's accounts is uh, a, a, a trend that I believe we're going to continue to see more of. So it's tough when, you know, a processor... You know, you asked how can financial institutions kind of protect themselves in, in general. And, you know, in, in the case of Heartland, it's actually who many financial institutions use in order to process the, the credit cards. And they had a data security breach. So it's tough when that happens to kind of protect against it. But there's a lot of things that financial institutions can do to make sure their data is not compromised and that their systems are not breached. Um, a layered security model, you know, there's no one solution that's going to do it. There's no silver bullet, and everybody's heard that before, but it's so true. you got to kind of do a, a risk analysis, figure out where your strengths and weaknesses are, and then shore up those areas and those gaps in your security uh, program that, that need some attention and some work. Uh, again, I mentioned those policies and procedures, and I mentioned training. Those are... Um, uh, th those are great ways to do it. So the combination of documents, training, and then technologies and solutions that are put in an effective program are really what financial institutions need to, to do to, to stay safe. Kevin, that's great insight. I appreciate you taking time today to talk about the study and to give us some thoughts on what financial institutions will see and can do going forward. No problem. Thank you so much, Tom. We've been talking with Kevin Prince. Chief Architect with Perimeter E-Security. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.